Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in the Bible given to us. Thank you that you are not a God who, who wants to remain hidden and distant from us, but you are a God who seeks to reveal himself to us. And Lord, we pray as we read your word and as I preach, you would reveal yourself to us in power, that we, you would speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You would encourage us and also challenge us in our lives because we long to live for you and bring you the glory. So come, Holy Spirit, move in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've given this sermon the longest and most waffly of titles that I've ever given a sermon. I've called it The Life-Transforming Implications of Union with Christ. The Life-Transforming Implications of Union with Christ. And I must confess that I've borrowed and slightly tweaked and lengthened that title from a man called Sinclair Ferguson, who's a great preacher. So if you're ever looking for someone to listen to online, Sinclair Ferguson's a great name to look up. But I, I borrowed the title from him. Um, let's focus on the life-transforming bit just for a second, because there are some parts of that title that you might not understand or appreciate. By the end of this sermon, I hope you'll be jumping for joy at the life-changing, life-transforming implications. Of, I can't even get it right myself. The life-transforming implications of union with Christ. But let's focus on the life-transforming bit. All of us, in lots of ways, want to transform our lives. Is that true? Inside this room, outside this room, lots of us want to transform our lives. And I believe Christians should have a deep longing in their hearts to be more like Jesus. Do you ever read the Gospels and go, I wish, wow, look at what Jesus is doing. Look at his love. Look at, look at his faith levels. I wish I was more like Jesus. Or do you ever look back on uh, your week or a day and think, Oh, I didn't, I didn't have a great week. I didn't have a great day. I just wish I was more like Christ and I lived more like him on the day I've just gone through. Well, this morning, Colossians chapter 3 is all about how God transforms our lives to become more like Christ on a day-by-day basis. So let's find out how Paul teaches the Colossian church to transform their lives. I'm going to read Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. Just before I do that, do I need to move my mic? Am I rustling a bit? Yeah, okay. I don't know how to get it any better. Is that slightly better? Okay. Sorry about this, guys. Let's read Colossians 3. I'm still rustling, so I'm just going to... Okay, I'm going to read Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Johnny, can I suggest we turn, the, turn it down? Don't worry about the recording. I'd rather it sound good in the room. Thank you. Right. From Colossians 3, this is where we're going today. I've got four points this morning. Firstly... From verses 1 to 4, we're going to talk about union with Christ in his resurrection. If that doesn't mean anything to you right now, that's okay, because I'm going to explain what that means. Union with Christ in his resurrection. Then secondly, from verses 5 to 11, I'm going to bring an application of your union with Christ in his resurrection. And that application is put sin to death in your life. Thirdly, from verses 12 to 17, another application, put on Christ-likeness. And fourthly and finally, how do we kill sin and put on Christ-likeness in a spiritual rather than legalistic way? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago I was preaching on legalism and Paul was saying, here's all these rules, do not touch, do not taste. And so the question is, how do we put on Christ in a spiritual way and not a legalistic way? How do we put sin to death in a spiritual way, not a legalistic way? So that's where I'm going this morning. So firstly... Let's look at verses 1 to 4 and speak about union with Christ in his resurrection. Now notice that Colossians 3 verse 1 begins with an if. It begins with the word if. Colossians 3 is written to people to whom something has already happened. Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ. If you haven't been raised with Christ, I'm not talking to you in this section of my letter. In verse 12... Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and blessed. So do you see, in verse 1, he's speaking to people who have been raised with Christ. And in verse 12, he's speaking to God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's speaking to Christians in this passage. He's speaking to Christians who have been chosen by God. He's speaking to Christians who have been set apart by God to be holy. Do you know God calls you holy this morning if you are a Christian? And not only holy, but also beloved. If you are a Christian, just a reminder, you are loved by God eternally loved by God. You're his chosen one. You're his holy one. You're his beloved one. So Paul's writing to Christians in Colossians chapter 3. And so that means if you're not a Christian, these verses aren't really for you. Um, but we are grateful that you are here. And so I will say this very briefly to you, if, you're not, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. There is an invitation in Colossians 3 
to be loved by God forever, to be called holy and beloved, to be called a chosen one of God, to be spiritually transformed by the power of the Spirit. And so I would invite you, put your faith in Christ. And these amazing descriptions that Paul reserves for Christians can be true for you as well. Believe in Christ's death upon the cross. Believe in his resurrection from the dead. Believe that he is the Lord and the Saviour. And you can be called holy and beloved, chosen one of God. But these verses are for true born-again Christians. And Paul says in verse 1, If you have been raised with Christ... Then in verse 3, Paul writes, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in verse 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In those verses, Paul is talking about spiritual union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Now, I spoke about this idea, union with Christ, three weeks ago, but I make no apology at all for teaching it to you again, because it's a glorious, glorious truth. This is what union with Christ means. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within you. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. That's Philippians 1, verse 19. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And the reason he's called the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is because what the Holy Spirit does is he connects us or unites us to Christ. This is an unseen work, a hidden work that's gone on in your life, in your heart, if you are a Christian. It's a spiritual reality that has happened to you as the Holy Spirit's come to dwell in you. And so Christ is in you by the Spirit. But because the Spirit connects you to Christ, you are also in Christ. You are united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, I'm not just making this stuff up. This is what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 14, verse 20. Jesus speaks about the day that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus says. In that day... You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, disciples, I will be in you, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And so the Spirit of Christ will reside within you. So I will be, with it, I will be in you in that day, but you will also be in me. You will be spiritually united to me, says Jesus, to all his followers. And we talk about, as Christians, being part of the body of Christ. And that's a spiritual reality by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head and we are united to him. Now the metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about union with Christ in John is of a vine and branches. So think in your head of a vine with branches. If a branch is chopped off from the vine, it's no longer connected and thrown on the ground, it's dead. It's no longer alive. It's just a stick. That's that's not a branch. That's a stick. When it's connected to the vine, it has everything it needs to live. The water and the sap or whatever it needs flows from the vine into the branch. So the branch, so long as it's connected to the vine, is alive. All the goodness it needs flows from the vine because it is truly part of the vine, truly united to the vine. And this is exactly what it's like with Christians. 
When we become a Christian, we are like a branch engrafted to a vine. And the Holy Spirit forms that connection so that we truly are united to Jesus Christ, the vine. And everything we need for life, not just life here on earth, but everlasting life, flows from Christ into us. The branch can say, I am part of the vine. So the Christian can say, I am part of Christ. The branch could even say, the vine is my life, in a sense, because everything it needs for life comes from the vine. And in the same way, the Christian can say, Christ is my life. That's precisely what Paul does in verse 4, Colossians 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears... He says Christ is your life because of spiritual union with Christ. Since we are united, spiritually united to Christ, Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. His deeds are our deeds. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life is our life. This is all true spiritually for you. And this is what Paul is writing about in Colossians 3, these first four verses. You have been raised with Christ through this spiritual union. You were connected to him in his resurrection. You died with Christ upon the cross. You you didn't physically die with Christ upon the cross, but spiritually you did because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Your life is now hidden in Christ, by which I I think Paul means this. We experience life here on earth and we experience spiritual life here on earth because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But the Holy Spirit is connecting me to Christ who is in heaven. So in one sense, I'm having spiritual life here on earth because the Holy Spirit's right here. But also that life is coming from Christ who is in heaven. And so I can say my life is in heaven, hidden with Christ. And through the Holy Spirit, his life is flowing into me. And if you're a Christian, you can stay the same. The life of Christ is flowing into you through the Holy Spirit who lives within you. My life is hidden with Christ. That's what Paul writes in verse 3 and then verse 4. Christ is my life. And what Paul explains is that one day at the end of time, Christ will appear. He is currently seated in heaven. One day he will appear, descend to the earth and the whole world will see that he truly is king. He will return with glory and we will be raised to be with him and then we will truly experience our life in its totality and completeness we'll be given new resurrection bodies we'll be caught up into the air with Christ and we will descend with Christ to come and reign on the earth in the new heavens and the new earth this is what Paul's talking about in verse 4 when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory everything that's true now spiritually for us will be true physically and completely in that moment when Christ Christ returns in glory. Now I'm laboring, I'm laboring this point about spiritual union with Christ. I'm laboring it because it's glorious. I'm laboring it because it's mystical and there's some of this some of this is going in for us and some of this is like wow this is like bigger than I can poss- possibly understand because we're talking about spiritual truths here. So I'm laboring it because it's glorious. I'm laboring it because it's mystical. I'm laboring it because it excites me to say that God the Holy Spirit lives within me and I'm part of Christ, God the Son. I'm spiritually connected to Jesus Christ. But I'm also laboring this point because Paul makes these spiritual realities the bedrock of life transformation in the rest of chapter 3. 
Do you want to put sin to death in your life, writes Paul? You need to know you died with Christ. Do you want to put on Christ-likeness in your life? You need to know you were raised with Christ. You see, the spiritual realities are the bedrock for all the instructions that follow in chapter 3. And the application in these first four verses from Paul is this. Set your minds on these truths. Fill your minds with the knowledge that you died with Christ, that you were raised with Christ, and that Christ is your life. And so this is the big question that the first four verses of chapter 3 pose. Where's your head at? What thoughts dominate your mind? Is it earthly things that fill your head on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis? Even now as I'm preaching, I know know what it's like listening to a sermon, even now as I'm preaching, are you thinking about earthly troubles, money problems, the house project, the next thing you're going to do in the home? Are you thinking about world news and all the struggles and things going on in the world? Are you thinking about what your friend is posting on social media or who your favourite football team have signed in the transfer window? Are you thinking about the TV programme that you're absolutely obsessed with at the moment or the computer game that you can't wait to get home and complete this afternoon where is your head at what is filling your mind is it earthly things or are you deliberately and consciously setting your mind on heavenly things and God's given us all sorts of gifts to help us set our mind on heavenly things he's given us the gift of prayer When we enter into prayer, we're focused on our Father who is in heaven. That's where we start our prayer. So prayer is a gift to fill our mind with heavenly things. He's given us, of course, God's word, which is, there's lots to read here, that that sets our mind on heavenly things, sets our mind on Christ and what he has done for us. When we worship in song, we're focused, aren't we, in a heavenward direction. We, We sing together and so we look around the room, but we also look up to God who has done great things for us. So it's a moment where we fill our minds with the things that are above, the things that are of God and Christ. You know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. I just want to ask you, are you loving God with your mind by setting your mind on the things above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places? And one of the big issues and struggles in our generation in this day and age is mental fatigue and weariness. If you speak to people, they're often tired, and it's not physical tiredness often, it's mental fatigue. And one of the reasons for that is because we are so connected, we have so much information being thrown at us from all kinds of different directions, our phones, our computers, our TV, all these things, all sorts of things going into our brain all the time. Are they of Christ, these things that are entering into our brain? And if not, then are we living out this instruction from Colossians? Are we thinking, actually, I need to prioritise and consciously set my mind upon God in order to combat and fight against all these things? I, I truly believe that real rest and refreshment and energy will come when we set our minds on Christ rather than filling our minds. I'm not saying all those things are bad. I'm just saying if we're, if we're constantly bombarded and filling our minds with all these things, none of which are of God, then where are we going to end up? I think we're going to end up mentally fatigued, weary, and in not very good places. So let's set our mind on heavenly things. 
So that was union with Christ in his death and resurrection and consequently setting our minds on heavenly things. But Paul has two more implications, two more applications of this union with Christ doctrine that he's been spelling out for us. And the the first is this, my second point, put sin to death, verses 5 to 11. Verse 5 begins with the word therefore. Have you ever heard this? When there's a therefore, you have to ask, what, it is, what is it therefore? What's it connecting you to previously? So you go, there's a therefore. So verses 1 to 4 flow into verses 5 to 11. Because you've died with Christ in this spiritual union, therefore put to death earthly and sinful things because this spiritual transformation has already taken place in you now you need to put to death things that are sinful when you become a christian you enter a battle with sin and i think many christians are too comfortable and at peace with the world but if you truly love christ you will hate sin in your life if you really love christ you will hate sin in your life and you will go to war to kill the sin that is in your life. This is what Paul is calling us to. Put to death is not a gentle instruction, is it? No, it's it's an aggressive instruction. And Paul says, put to death, kill the sin in your life. And so Paul then lists many of the sins we need to kill. So what I want us to invite us is a moment of examining ourselves. Let's prepare for battle by reading this list that Paul gives to us in Colossians 3 and ask ourselves, Lord, are there any of these that I need to kill? Not because we have been forgiven. So so we have been forgiven. So we don't need to kill these things in order that God would love us, in order that God would accept us. But because God has loved us and has accepted us and has transformed us now, as we're full of thanksgiving and full of love for God, now we enter into a life where we're saying, I'm going to battle against sin. And these are the things on the list. He begins in verse 5 with sexual immorality or fornication, which we believe is all sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, the Greek word there in verse 5 is the word porneia. So we're certainly including use of pornography when we talk about sexual immorality from Colossians chapter 3. So we need to put that to death in our lives. The second thing that Paul talks about is impurity, passion and evil desire. So Paul is making clear that when he speaks about sexual immorality, he's not just speaking about sexual immorality as an external deed, but he's also talking about what's internal, what's going on inside. He talks about impurity and passion and evil desires. Those are internal things. This is an external. Avoid sexual immorality. Put to death sexual immorality externally, but also fight internally against impurity, passion and evil desire. Do you remember when we talked about legalism? We said that legalism is all about what's external, what other people can see. But God cares about the heart and the mind. And so Paul, when he says puts into death, is not just talking about what happens externally that people can see. He's talking about what's going on in your heart and in your mind. And so we need to put to death impure thoughts. We need to put to death passions and desires that are not godly but evil And of course, he's not just talking about those things in a sexual context. He's talking about other ways in which our passions and our desires cannot honour God and take us in the wrong direction. Next, Paul talks about covetousness, which is idolatry, he says. To covet is to yearn to possess something that belongs to someone else. 
So you can covet in a sexual way, eagerly desire to sleep with someone who's not your husband or wife. You can covet possessions, house, bigger houses, nicer cars, or, or you can just covet being wealthy in general. You see someone rich and you go, oh, I really wish I had that amount of money in my bank account. You can covet someone's lifestyle, their family life, or their career, or the fact that they've gone around the world and gone on loads and loads of holidays. We covet, we long to possess something which doesn't belong to us, which belongs to someone else. And Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. The moment you covet something, what you're really saying is, I have God, but he's not enough for me. I need that thing, and that will bring me joy. That will bring me satisfaction. That will, that's what coveting really is. It's saying, I have God, but he's not enough. I need something else. I need what my next door neighbor's got. I need that life that someone else has got. And God's saying, hello, I'm God. I'm the one who gives all joy and all comfort and eternal life. And, and I've loved you with an everlasting, faithful, steadfast love. You have, I'm your father in heaven. I'm your savior. I'm your king. You have everything you need in relationship with me. And we go, nah. You're, you're pretty good, God, but actually what I really need is that. And that's what covetous is, covetousness is. And that's why it's idolatry, because it's, it's idolizing something over and above God whom you already have as a Christian. Think of verses 1 to 4. You can either set your mind on what is above, on Christ, or you can set your mind on that thing that you don't have that you really, really want. I wonder where your mind is at. Is it coveting or is it worshipping? Paul's list continues in verse 8. He talks about anger and wrath. Paul uses two Greek words here that mean very similar things. But one means a deep-seated, residing anger. And the other means a passionate outburst of rage. So that's why you've got anger and wrath next to each other. And we go, well, they're the same things. But actually, there's two different things Paul's talking about here. A deep-seated, residing resentment and anger, internal. And then this outward, passionate rage that we can sometimes experience. Now, there is such thing as righteous anger. Christ shows righteous anger in his life. But 99% of our anger comes from selfishness rather than love for others. I, I'm, I'm willing to, at least it's true of my life, that 99% of my anger is unrighteous anger rather than righteous anger. And that's what Paul's writing about here. Either a deep-seated residing anger that you hold in and don't express, or this outward external outburst of, of rage towards someone else. Then Paul talks about malice and slander. Malice is the internal, wanting evil to fall upon someone else. I'm filled with malice towards someone if I want something really bad to happen to them. Slander is the outward expression of hatred towards someone. Slagging them off, slandering them, either to their face or behind their back, criticising them. So there's an inward and outward element here as well. We need to put to death malice and put to death slander. Then Paul talks about obscene talk or filthy language. Swearing, dirty jokes, speech that corrupts others with rottenness. Paul says, put those things to death in your life. And finally, in verse 9, he talks about lying, not being truthful, sharing falsehood. I just want to pause before we get on to the good stuff. I just want to pause 
and examine that list and ask, is God convicting you or prompting you, revealing any sin in your life? Is the Holy Spirit moving, speaking to you that there might be something that you need to put to death, that you need to kill off in your heart? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer in Christ, you don't sit there and feel condemned. Rather, you go, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I've I've died with Christ upon the cross. I've risen to new life. I want to put these things to death in the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder whether God is speaking to you about anything this morning. Since we have died with Christ, we should put sin to death. Since we were raised with Christ, we ought to put on Christ-likeness. And so that's my third point this morning, put on Christ-likeness, verses 12 to 17. Now remember, we do this as Christians who are chosen, holy, and loved. We're already chosen, we're already holy, we're already loved, and yet now there's, there's further to go with the Holy Spirit as he clothes us in these wonderful qualities. And so let's do the same, with, let's prepare for battle in this way as well, by choosing to put on these amazing qualities. And the first thing Paul lists is, compassionate hearts. Christians should grow in care and concern towards the sufferings and struggles of others. Christians should not be aloof or apathetic or unmoved by the plight of others, but we should be moved in our hearts. We have compassionate hearts for others. Are you putting on a compassionate heart in your life? Secondly, kindness. Not only moved in our hearts, but also moved to action, to show kindness, to do something helpful. So are you feeling compassion in your heart and not doing anything about it? Well, let's put on compassionate hearts and also put on kindness to love and care for those people who need our help. Paul talks about humility. Christians ascribe all their successes to God and are deeply aware of their own failings, actually and their constant need for God's mercy in their life. I actually find the older I grow, the more aware I am of the way I need God's mercy and grace in my life on a day-by-day basis. Sometimes I can think I'm going backwards because I'm becoming more aware of the ways in which I fail. And yet, actually, that's part of God bringing humility, reminding me that I need him, I need his mercy and grace in my life. As a result, Christians do not puff themselves up arrogantly, but instead think of themselves less and think of God more and more, praising him from the glorious salvation we have received. They do not lack confidence. Humility doesn't mean they lack confidence, but they find confidence in Christ. I don't preach here because I think I'm fantastic and I'm just... No, I preach here because Christ has given me this opportunity and equipped me to do this. My confidence in preaching is completely in Christ. And, And one day, if you want to know the story, you can hear about how I was a terrible public speaker, embarrassed myself at school, couldn't do it, and now find myself doing it on a week by week basis before people because it's the power of the Spirit in me. It's confidence in Christ, not in myself. Christians do not boast except in what Jesus has done for them. Because they're they're humble, they're not proud. They boast in what Jesus has done on the cross and in their lives. Do you need to put on humility? The next thing is meekness. Do you need to put on meekness? Now, I think meekness means two things. Firstly, gentleness and softness. Meek people don't lack strength but they express themselves and stand for what is true in a gentle, caring way. That's meekness, to be gentle in the way you treat others and express truth. So they still stand for truth, they don't back down. 
and yet they are meek in the gentleness and kindness that they show. But the second thing that meekness means is appropriate submissiveness. Christians should find joy in submitting to others' people's will in humble service. There's joy in submitting to others and saying, actually, your will is more important than my will in this moment, so I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do what your your will is saying. One of the astonishing things about our Saviour Christ is how often in the Gospels he submits and serves others. He submits to their will. We typically think the one who submits is lower and less important than the one whose will is being done. But Christ shows us, even the great Christ, our Saviour and Lord, our King, he shows us that to submit is to be great. He is perfect in meekness. And one one of the astonishing things in the Gospels is the way he's handed over into the hands of sinners. He, he submits even to Pontius Pilate and to these guys who are putting him to death. He shows such submissive heart. And so we ought to put on meekness, to put on appropriate submission, serving the will of others. In verse 12, Paul tells us to put on patience. God in his wisdom has ordained that Christians would be required to wait And often progress takes sustained efforts over long periods of time. And sometimes we can't do anything to make something happen. We just have to wait for it to happen. And so God, in his wisdom, has required us to wait to be patient because patience requires faith. Here in verse 13, our patience also extends to bearing with one another and forgiving one another when we give things wrong. By the way, I feel like I've stood up here quite often the last few weeks and spoken about forgiving each other and bearing with one another. That's not because I'm bearing some grudge against someone in the congregation, Um, but it's because it's biblical. I'm preaching the word of God and we find time and time again, God says the church should forgive each other and love one another. Verse 14, over all these qualities, put on love. We know that our God is love. And we know that Christ has shown us such love by dying for us upon the cross. And therefore his people love sacrificially and unconditionally and resolutely, clothing ourselves in the love that God has shown to us. So let's pause again and look at um, that list. Is there a quality that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to put on? Do you need to show kindness to someone? Do you need to pray for a compassionate heart? Do you need to put on love? Do you need to grow in patience? Where is God calling you to grow this morning in the Holy Spirit? Are you putting on these Christ-like qualities? The final question then is, how do we put sin to death? And how do we clothe ourselves in Christ-like qualities? in a spiritual way rather than a legalistic way. And so I need you to remember my sermon two weeks ago where we we talked about the lies of legalism. We talked about the errors of legalism. This passage where Paul says, all these rules that you're implying, applying to yourselves, aren't the way to grow. The Colossians were putting rules, making up rules. Do not touch, do not taste, do not do these things. They were writing lists of all the things Christians should do. And Paul says, don't do that. That's not the way you grow as a Christian. So how do you do it? How do we put things to death and and grow in Christlikeness without being legalistic? Well, certainly with watchfulness and prayerfulness. We watch for sin and we pray and ask for the Spirit's help. We watch for qualities in Christ that we want to put on and we pray for the Spirit's help. Certainly we we uh, we put sin to death by fleeing temptation. We need to avoid situations where it's easy to sin. 
But to really unpack how do we put sin to death in a spiritual, not legalistic way, I want to talk about those fundamental errors of legalism that I mentioned two weeks ago. So firstly, we said legalism is about laws, not grace. We don't put sin to death by writing new laws for ourselves. Rather, if we want to put sin to death in our lives, we remember, proclaim, and celebrate grace. Look at this passage in Colossians chapter 3. It's all about growing. Paul's saying you need to put sin to death and you need to put on Christ-likeness. But look at how often he reminds the Colossians about the grace that they have received. He starts by saying you've been raised with Christ. It's already happened. You've died with him. Christ is your life. You're chosen by God, not because you're a great person, but because God loves to show you mercy in grace you're holy you're loved in verse 13 Paul says the Lord has forgiven you a passage which should be all about instructions and things to do is actually a reminder over and over and over and over again about the power of grace and what God has done for us Paul can't help himself he has to keep reminding his readers about the grace that they have received and celebrate what God has already done so how do we put sin to death in our lives how do we put on Christ-likeness We remember and we rejoice in grace and we live in it. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. We see it and we confess it, even weep at times, perhaps, because of the way we've we've not lived up to what we wanted in our lives. But we do not wallow in guilt or beat ourselves up. You're not, you're not going to grow in Christ-likeness if you spend your whole life locked away, beating yourself up for all the ways you failed God. That's not how it goes. No, we immediately celebrate forgiveness. Yes, I've sinned, but I'm forgiven. Christ died for me. I'm chosen by God. We go to the cross. We remember our union with Christ. And therefore, we find even a moment of sin turned into a moment of rejoicing and worship and joy because of what Christ has done. And in this way, we put to death sin and put on righteousness and Christ-likeness. This emphasis on grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, will enable us to put sin to death in our lives. So remember and live in grace. Now, the second thing I said about legalism is legalism is concerned with what's external rather than what's internal. But look at what Paul writes here. Firstly, in verse 1 to 4, it's about our minds, what we're thinking about. And then in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Paul knows that war with sin isn't an external battle in order to look good to other people. Paul knows that our war with sin is a battle first and foremost in our hearts and in our minds. From the heart flows the words of our mouths and the deeds of our body. So if we want to put sin to death, we need to start with our hearts and with our minds. Well, there's good news because the Holy Spirit resides in your heart. So the heart for a Christian is a good place to start. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. It's a very bad place to start, to start living because you can't change your own heart. But as a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwelling in our hearts. He is already at work. And so this is an invitation to partner with the Holy Spirit, examining and feeding our minds and our hearts healthily. So set your mind on what's heavenly. And let Christ's peace rule in your hearts. Christ's peace is that wonderful truth that we were once at war with God through our rebellion and through our sin. But now, because of what Christ did for us upon the cross, we are friends with God, 
the war is over and we have peace. He is residing in us. He is with us. We are friends with God, the creator of the universe, because of what Christ has done. And so Paul says, let that peace reign. Let that peace reign. So we don't want to be legalists. We want to put sin to death and put on Christ-likeness. So we need to be concerned with hearts and minds rather than imposing external rules on our lives. Thirdly and finally, I said that legalism preaches man-made laws as if they were from God. And so to combat that, we need to prioritise God's word if we want to put sin to death and grow in Christ-likeness. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, admonishing one another in all wisdom. And even sing scripture, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. If legalism invents human rules, we must know that God's word is the sword of the spirit. And so every time we open and read God's word, we are being spiritual as we listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. The sword of the spirit is at work in God's word. And so we try and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly when we gather. And I'd encourage you as an individual to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly when you're not with your Christian brothers and sisters. We must put sin uh, sin to death and put on Christ-likeness by knowing God's word. Do you remember Jesus when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Satan comes at him and Jesus quotes scripture to combat him. And so we need to be the same. We need to dwell in the word so we can fight against sin. So we put sin to death and we put on Christ-likeness by knowing, rejoicing and living in grace. By setting our minds on Christ and letting the peace of Christ reign in our hearts. And by learning and remembering and quoting God's word, dwelling in it richly so that we might grow. But at the heart of all of this is this glorious, glorious spiritual truth, which is true for you if you are a Christian this morning. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Christ is our life. And one day he is returning in glory and we will be raised with him physically and totally and completely. So therefore, let us put sin to death and put on Christ-likeness with the help of the Holy Spirit not in a legalistic way. Let's pray. I'm going to stay sitting, sitting as I pray. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this list of sins. And as I do that, I just encourage you to confess and pray for change in your hearts. And then I'm going to read the list of qualities and I'd encourage you to pray, help me, Lord. And then I'll pray for us and I'll end our meeting. So let's, Lord, we just confess that we have done things wrong. And as I read this list, Lord, we just come into your presence and say, thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are forgiven. Would you help us put these things to death in our life? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Lord, help us kill those things in our life and and put them to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we know that we model, you modelled for us such a wonderful way of life. We pray we put on these qualities in our lives. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all, putting on love. Lord, we thank you for these great qualities, and I pray that we would clothe ourselves in these things that come from Christ.
I pray we would do this empowered by the Holy Spirit, not in a legalistic way, but in a way of worship and love and knowing the Spirit's power. Fill us with a knowledge of the grace we have received. May we rejoice in grace. I pray we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And Lord, we offer you our hearts and our minds. May our minds be set on things above, the things of Christ, the things that are above. And may the Holy Spirit move in our hearts and may the peace of Christ reign in our hearts so that we might grow in these wonderful godly characteristics. I pray that the word preached and read this morning would not just be words, but you would do genuine heart and mind work in us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit's power. In this moment now, and as we leave this place and, and go, go about our weeks, Lord God, I pray we would take that step forward in Christ-likeness. Kill sin, move on. I pray that you would break the power of sin in people's lives where they need, need the power of sin broken, Lord. Because we love you and you have done so much for us. We are united with you, Christ, by the Holy Spirit. We have died to sin. We've been raised to new life. And so we pray you would change us. I pray we would know the life-transforming implications of union with Christ. Not just head knowledge, Lord, but the way we live, live our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.